Hello and welcome to Eccentric Earth, the podcast where I, your host Amy Walker, delve into stories from across history with a guest who has no idea what the topic's going to be. Normally, I'm joined by a single guest, but tonight we've got something a little bit special as we have two guests. First up is returning guest, Adi Anghang. Hello. And joining us for the first time is Hannah Simpson. Hi, everybody. Hey, thank you for joining us, Hannah. It's uh, brave of you to come on a show you've not even heard of before. (laughs) I'm excited. That's pretty much what I do is things I've never done before. Well, I'm sure you'll be all right. Addy's a good person to team up with. He'll uh, keep you safe. Yes. Amy is known to terrify her guests. Well, I, I do throw them horrific topics every now and again, just to keep them on their toes. So, yeah, I, oh, I can be I'm mean pretty, to my guests. <laughs> I'm pretty sure Chris still has nightmares. Yep. I know I do. You're the one who chose the topic. Look, a lot of the time I know a tiny bit about it before I start researching. So in regards to the McDonald's massacre, I knew it was going to be bad, but I didn't know how bad it was going to get until I started reading. So it really upset me finding out that stuff as well. So of your own volition, but okay. Before we get into our story, I just want to take a moment to talk to you about the Cosplay Journal, a new coffee table magazine by friend of the show, Holly Rose focusing on the diversity and craft of cosplay. The Cosplay Journal is out now, and I've read the first issue. It's a great read, full of informative articles and beautiful photographs. I'm a geek myself, but I'm not a cosplayer, yet I still found a lot in this magazine to give me a deeper look into this part of geek culture. The book has craft-focused articles on sewing, armour building and makeup, as well as some interviews with some incredible cosplayers, some professional, some simply being the perfectionist amateur. They ask, are cosplay guests worth it in their opinion piece article, and have a handy guide for cosplayers on how to survive a con, which is advice worth reading even if you're not a cosplayer. The Cosplay Journal is available now. You can find it on Amazon for just $9.99, so make sure you pick up your copy today so that you don't miss out. Robert Smalls was born to a house slave, Lydia Polite, on the 5th of April, 1839, in a cabin behind the house of his master, John McKee, at 511 Prince Street in Buford. His mother, Lydia, served in the house but grew up in the fields, where at the age of nine, she was taken from her own family on the Sea Islands. The identity of Robert's father is not officially known, but is believed to be Henry McKee, the son of the plantation's owner. Robert was raised in the McKee house and enjoyed a little more acceptance in the community and made friends with their children. On several occasions, he ignored the night curfew for blacks and stayed out with his white companions. 
Robert's mother was worried that her son was growing up with too many wild ideas and didn't fully comprehend what a slave life meant for him or other black people. When he was 10, his mother took him to a slave auction and to watch a public whipping of black slaves. She also arranged for Robert to spend some time working the fields. This event was a turning point for Robert and fundamentally changed his view on slavery. I wonder why. No, there was very different like strata of slaves. Like there's none of it that's acceptable by any standards, but definitely there were different strata of what privileges and expectations yeah. people had. It's very much at least within the painting and the description that we learn growing up about it, and we go into this a lot in American public schools, at least. But don't they try to paint, like, a better picture for you guys of what it actually was? Not really. We don't try to paint it any good picture about it whatsoever. We paint it as this happened, and this is how that economy was built. There's not much we can do to change it at this point, but definitely there's no part of it that would appear to be acceptable whatsoever. That's I mean, not... I mean, white people can offer themselves up as slaves for black people for a few centuries, and then it would kind of even it out. Okay. This is also I, speaking I offer, as a northern... Like, I offer that British and Spaniards do that specifically. Well, speaking as a northern student, so having the bias in New Jersey growing up of you know, this is when the South rebelled against us, as opposed to this is when we rebelled against them. So I'm sure it's taught differently to a certain extent in the South, but at the same time, yes, it is a tremendous stain of many upon the American experience. Anyway, go on, Robert. Auction. Whipping. Fun. The result of this lesson led Robert to defiance, and he frequently found himself in the Buford jail. Luckily, Henry McGee would bail him out on each occasion. Lydia became worried that her plan to show Robert the horrors of white brutality worked too well, and was afraid that his newfound defiance would land him in serious trouble. As such, she asked Henry to send Robert away. When he was 12, Robert's master sent him to Charleston to hire out as a labourer, with the money paid to his master. At first, he worked in a hotel and then became a lamplighter on Charleston streets. Robert began to take extra work in order to earn some money of his own as his main income went back to the McKees. In his teen years, his love of the seas led him to work on Charleston's docks and wharfs. Robert was a dock worker, a rigger, a sailmaker and eventually worked his way up to become a wheelman, a job that was the same as a ship pilot, though slaves were not allowed that title and as such were called a wheelman instead. At the age of 17, Robert began a relationship with Hannah Jones, an enslaved hotel maid owned by the Kingman family. As the two of them were owned by different families, they would need to ask their owner's permission to marry. Usually when slaves owned by different families were allowed to marry, they would be unable to live together. Luckily, their owners agreed to allow them to marry, and they moved in together. Wow. Yeah, quite unusual for the time if two people owned by other people, horrible phrase, married, they just couldn't live together because their owners wouldn't let them leave the properties and so forth. It was really messed up. 
Well, there was that, or they were arranged into marriages literally for the sake of breeding. This is all characteristic of the antebellum South, particularly in the Carolinas. So, so far, Robert's been quite lucky with his owner. (laughs) You know, the, the fact that he's been allowed to move away and now marry and live with his wife, he's... He's doing a lot better than a lot of people in his situation. It could also be because he's, uh, I assume from the fact that of, of your beginning of the story, he's half white. It's a theory. Um, it was going, going slightly off the story to talk about his life in general. Um, I haven't found anything that confirms he was 100% um, McKee's son, but everything seems to point that way. There's all the accounts of McKee sort of helping him out more than he would a slave, bailing him out of prison. And uh, Robert was referred to as mulatto a few times in record, which is... Half white, half black. Yes. Yeah. Uh, mixed race. Yeah. Which, you know, it, I don't know how accurate those descriptions are. It could just be he's a, a lighter skinned black person. So they're like, oh, he must be mulatto or if it was because his father was white i i haven't been able to confirm any of that but a lot of scholars do ex- do sort of suspect that is the case slave owners with their slaves uh the stories that carry on through the years of rampant sexual assault oh yeah literally imagining you have property and then thinking you can do sexually what you want and having children out of these relations. And keep in mind, there were also homosexual relations as well. There were men abused by by male slave owners. There were also female slave owners who abused male slaves. Like, this went in every imaginable direction. So, the... Well, yeah, they they weren't people to them. They were used as sex toys. They were owned. All of the above. There's no wrong answer to what atrocities were committed. And being in jail was the least of it. You could be lynched on account of these sorts of things. But to be perfectly honest, nobody wanted to lynch their own slave because that's a tremendous loss of the value of a human being. Not as in, like, the life of a human being, but the actual value. value. Yeah. What they would usually do is sell them to another owner who would put them under stricter guidance. And they would also do plenty of other things. They could brand people. They could whip them. Just all kinds of things. But yes, it, it, it sounds like this particular person had an incentive to look out for his mm. property. property. I hate to even son. disgusting <laughs> saying these things. I'm just trying to say that all of this is completely plausible and consistent with how I've been taught about it growing up in the country where this was happening. And where the northern states, at least for many, many years, were, you know, definitely not... Like, every state had people who had slaves. That's not... It's a common misconception that it was only in the South. It was tremendously more so in the South. And eventually it was outlawed in the North. But still, there were you know, tacit approval for many, many reasons, especially because part of getting the Constitution together not much before this 
and the Bill of Rights was that in order to get the South along, they had to agree to that three-fifths clause. And the idea that the population of slaves, although they couldn't vote, actually was included in the amount of representation they got, which is, by today's standards and by any reasonable standard, horrific. Mm. Okay, so Robert. Yeah, okay, so they've been given permission. So on December 24th, 1856, the two of them married. Hannah was 35 and already had two teenage daughters. Bear in mind, Robert's 17 at the time. Oh, Robert is only 17 at the time. Yep, and his new wife is 35. Oh, okay. But from all accounts, he does seem to love Hannah, and their own first child, Elizabeth Lydia Smalls, was born in February 1858. I'm sorry, I'm still not over the fact that he's fucking 17. (laughs) Age was not a thing they thought about in the same way we do. Yeah, you, uh, you had to not... get your living in quick back then. <laughs> Seriously, the life expectancy for a slave was sig- probably about 35, 36. If you were a house slave, maybe 40, maybe 50. I, 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 what you're saying is absolutely... Yeah, the life expectancy was not very long. They worked these people literally as hard as they could. People are fun. Well aware that there was no guarantee that his family could remain together permanently, especially as under the slave laws, his child was then the property of of Hannah's owner, he asked his wife's owner if he could purchase his family. They agreed, but set a price of $800. Oh. Yeah, yeah. And even with his side job, that's going to take Robert quite a few years to get to. Yeah. Three years later, they also had a son, Robert Jr. But Mm -hmm. unfortunately, he died of smallpox at the age of two. In April 1861, the American Civil War began with the Battle of Fort Sumter in nearby Charleston Harbour. In the fall of 1861, Robert was assigned to steer the planter, a lightly armed Confederate military transport under the command of Charleston's district commander, Brigadier General Roswell Ripley. The planter's duties were to deliver dispatches, troops and supplies, and to survey waterways and lay mines. This is one of the most fucked up things about the Civil War, is the fact that the Confederates made slaves fight in their armies, and on their side it's like, (laughs) forcing people to fight to stay slaves, it's insane. And the Revolutionary War was the same way, actually, that both the uh, Continental Army and the British troops on the continent were recruiting the slave population as hard as they could with all kinds of promises for what would happen afterward, assuming they were on the winning side. Like the fact that they would gain their freedom afterwards. Well, yeah, all kinds of things, assuming that their side won. And obviously only one side won, so we'll never actually know what the British would have offered, you know, to its uh, recruits. But definitely the Americans did not follow through on a lot of it. What a surprise. There were some very decorated people in the Revolutionary War and the Civil War as well. And of course, mind you, you know, they said he got married in 1858. That's right after 1856, you said, or 1858? Uh, Married in 56. 
56. Okay, so 57 was the Dred Scott decision, which had to do with the idea of a slave who did manage to escape into Northern Territory. And the Supreme Court, no, actually upheld that there was a responsibility of the Northern states to return that slave to that slave's owner. Mm. It's one of the worst decisions the Supreme Court ever made, and it was, you know, overturned years later. But there was definitely a consideration about, you know, what would you do? So, of course, earning $800 felt a lot more plausible than fleeing. People are fun. Robert piloted the planter through Charleston's harbor and beyond, and on the on area riverways and along South Carolina, Georgia, and the Florida coasts. From Charleston Harbor, Robert and the planter's crew could see the line of Federal blockade ships in the outer harbor, seven miles away. Robert appeared content and had the confidence of the planter's crew and owners. The day of May 12, 1862, the planter travelled ten miles southwest to Charleston to stop at Coles Island, a Confederate post on the Sonto River that was being dismantled. There, she picked up four large guns to transfer to a fort in Charleston Harbour. When they arrived back in Charleston, the crew loaded 200 pounds of ammunition and 20 cords of firewood onto the planter. During this time, Robert's family and the family members of other slaves on board the planter boarded another steamer docked at the North Atlantic Wharf. On the evening of May 12th, the planter was docked as usual at the wharf below General Ripley's headquarters. Here, three white officers disembarked to spend the night ashore, leaving Robert and the crew on board. At around 3am, Robert and seven of the eight slave crewmen made their escape to the Union blockade ships. Robert put on the captain's uniform and wore a straw hat similar to the captain's. He sailed the planter to North Atlantic Wharf and picked up his wife and children and the families of the other slave crew. He then guided the ship past five Confederate harbour forts without suspicion. He gave the correct signals at checkpoints, and from a distance, he appeared to be Captain Relay. Well, I mean, shouldn't he have learned the signals, so it makes sense that he gave the correct ones? Yep, and he's dressed up as the captain, and according to reports, he had copied all of his mannerisms and the way he moved on deck. So the guys at the checkpoints would have just looked and went, yeah, that's the captain. Especially in the dark. Yeah. The planter sailed past Fort Sumter at around 4.30am. He headed straight for the Union Navy fleet, flying a white bedsheet as a surrender flag. The planter had been seen by the USS Onward, which was about to fire until a crewman spotted the white flag. Lucky. The Onward's captain, John Frederick Nichols, boarded the planter and Robert asked for a United States flag to display. He surrendered the planter and her cargo to the United States Navy, saying, Good morning, sir. I've brought you some of the old United States guns, sir. Mm. In addition to her own light guns, the planter carried four loose artillery pieces from Coles Island and the 200 pounds of ammunition. Most valuable, however, were the captain's code book containing the Confederate signals and a map of the mines and torpedoes that had been laid in Charleston's harbour. Robert's own extensive knowledge of the Charleston region's waterways and military configurations also proved highly valuable. At Port Royal, he gave detailed information about Charleston's defences to Admiral Samuel Dupont, commander of the blockading fleet. Federal officers were surprised to learn from Robert that contrary to their calculations, 
only a few thousand troops remained to protect the area, the rest having been sent to Tennessee and Virginia. They also learnt that the Coles Island fortifications on Charleston's southern flank were being abandoned and were without protection. This intelligence allowed Union forces to capture Coles Island and its string of batteries without a single shot being fired on May 20th, a week after Robert's escape. The Union would hold the Stono Inlet as a base of operations for the three-year duration of the war. Robert received $1,500 personally for having liberated the planter from the Confederates and giving it to the Union forces. Robert, now 23, quickly became known in the North as a hero for his daring exploit. Well, yeah. Newspapers and magazines reported his actions. Southern newspapers demanded harsh discipline for the Confederate officers whose joint shore leave had allowed the slaves to steal the ship. (laughs) The three Confederate officers were court-martialed and two convicted, but the verdicts were later overturned. Now, I did find a couple of reports about the court-martials, and one of the things that came up that was quite interesting got it overturned was they floated the notion that the slaves had help from the Union and their reasoning was because black people couldn't have escaped without white help. Yeah, uh, that would be a easy defense of the day. Yeah, and from what I've seen in a few of the historic documents, they expect that's the reason why the verdicts were overturned because there was no evidence of white help. So if they'd have convicted they'd have to admit they were outsmarted by black slaves so they just sort of swept it under the rug also the confederacy needed every capable officer could get after a while so they weren't really in the business of they had to come up with an excuse to get these people back on ships the confederacy did however place a bounty of four thousand dollars on robert immediately after the capture of the planter robert was invited to travel to new york to help raise money for ex-slaves. But Admiral DuPont vetoed the proposal, and Robert began to serve the Union Navy. He used his detailed knowledge of mines laid near Charleston to assist them. However, with the encouragement of Major General David Hunter, the Union commander of Port Royal, Robert went to Washington, D.C. in August 1862 with Reverend Mansfield French, a Methodist minister who had helped found Wilberforce University in Ohio and had been sent by the American Missionary Association to help former slaves at Port Royal. They wanted to travel to Washington to persuade Lincoln and the Secretary of War, Edwin Stanton, to permit black men to fight for the Union. Although Lincoln had previously rescinded orders by Hunter and Generals Fremont and Sherman to mobilise black troops, Stanton soon signed an order permitting up to 5,000 black Americans to enlist in the Union forces at Port Royal. Those who did were organised as the 1st and 2nd South Carolina regiments. Smalls worked as a civilian with the Navy until March 1863, when he was transferred to the Army. By his own account, Robert was present at 17 major battles and engagements in the Civil War. Don't they have a way to count in how many... Don't you just get sent off to a specific battle? Well, battles were a bit more haphazard than they are today, but yeah, 17 sounds like... Again, if he, that's his account, that's the account. Yeah. Like this makes None of this sounds implausible to me. I'm honestly surprised he survived this all. Yeah, especially with a four grand bounty on his head. <laughs> He's 
He's doing he's quite like, well. He's like, fuck everything. Let's fight. After the capture, the planter required some repairs, which were performed locally and went into Union service near Fort Pulaski. The boat was valued for its shallow drift compared to other boats in the fleet. Well, yeah, because that way it doesn't sweep the torpedoes or the mines. Yep. The more the draft, the, the higher the draft, the better. Mm-hmm. Which is why they used it to plant the mines in the first place as well. Yeah, so you don't set your own mines off. I just want an episode where Amy has to read really hard names. No, I'm excited. This is fun to listen to. This is my history. Or at least my country's history. I wasn't around back then yet. And I have to be honest, I was worried picking American history with an American on the show because it's, oh crap, what if she knows this topic? <laughs> I don't know this specific story, but I know there were lots of them like this. Yeah, I mean, there are like hundreds of thousands of people at that point. Someone, like a few of them had to have similar stories. No, no I mean, there are the lots of stories of Civil War heroes. I have not heard this particular one before, which is a shame, but these are all within the line of the stories I've heard growing up. It's a shame, especially as he's the guy who helped convince Lincoln to let black people serve. It's like, we're not that far into the story yet, but he's already done some pretty important things. Mm -hmm. Just a few. Okay, so, yeah, the boat was valued for its shallow drift, uh, and Robert was made pilot of the Crusader under Captain Alexander Rind until the planter was repaired. Smalls and Rind sounds like a cool TV show. <laughs> as a slave, he had assisted in laying mines along the coast and river. Now, as a pilot, he helped find and remove them, and serviced the blockade between Charleston and Beaufort. He was also present when the planter was fired upon at several fights at Adams Run on the Duaho River, and at battles in Roxville at Johns Island, and at the Second Battle of Pocatelligo. Hannah, why does your country have so many strange names? Because we appropriated lots of cultures. And they stole some from you guys. That is true. Yeah, I can't complain. We, The British have probably appropriated more. So, yeah, um, won't point fingers at where names come from. And a lot of these cities were named when it was not yet America, so... Um, yeah, sorry, your fault. <laughs> <laughs> Although, you... keep in mind, actually... Um, that a lot of battles in the Civil War, it's the same battle, but it actually has two different names. Now, I forget which is which. I believe that the Union would name a battle based on the nearest river. Okay. And the South um, named the rivers, or named, or sorry, the Union named it on the river, on, on the area that it was, and the South named it on the nearest river. So I think, like, for example, there's one that's called the Battle of... I want to say it's... I want to make sure... I'm going to check this to make sure that I say it right. But I believe it's Bull Run, the Union calls it, and the South calls it Manassas. So they do actually have different names for the same... That's, that's very yeah, the first I didn't battle, that. Battles of Bull Run is the same as the Battles of Manassas. They actually have two separate naming conventions for the war, for the battles. So, just so you know, it's interesting. I'm just trying to remember which convention was which. I want to say that the South used the area and the North used the... But I could be wrong. Still, it's interesting to know that 
each battle had two names. That's that's kind of cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Bull Run River, and then I think in Virginia, I want to say. So that was the river, and then uh, Manassas was what the South called it. Uh, Robert was made the pilot of the ironclad USS Keokuk, again under Captain Rind, and took part in the attack on Fort Sumter on April 7th, 1863. Yeah, the ironclad were really interesting ships. They're basically as low to the water as they could possibly be with just cannons sticking out and iron on top. They were like tank ships. Ooh, they are literally underwater tanks. That's awesome. They weren't underwater. They were floating, but... Yeah, but you get my drift. No, a submarine is an underwater tank. Different thing. There were submarines in the Civil War, too. Yeah, so learning some of these tech existed during the Civil War is kind of mind-blowing. Like, torpedoes and mines, you kind of don't expect it to be in the Civil War. There were torpedoes and mines to a certain extent in the Revolutionary War, too. Mm. They just weren't sure where they are. No, no, seriously. One of the things that they actually tried to do was use a submarine in the Revolutionary War to lay explosives on the bottom of ships and sink them. Look up the turtle. It's a really cool story in its own right. The Keokuk took 96 hits in the battle and retired for the night, sinking the next morning. Robert and the, much of the crew moved to the Ironside, and the fleet returned to Hilton Head. In 1863, Robert and Hannah had their second daughter, Sarah. First of the family to be born free. What's the name of their first son? Well, they had Robert Jr. and Elizabeth before that. Yep. No, they had... Oh, their second daughter. Yes. Okay, so they had three children at that point. Yeah, three children with them, and Hannah also had two daughters before. Yeah, so she had five children and he had three. Yes. Okay. On December 1st, 1863, Robert was piloting the planter under Captain James Nickerson on Folly Island Creek when Confederate batteries at Successionville opened fire. Nickerson fled the pilot house and hid in the coal bunker. Robert refused to surrender. He feared that the black crew would not be treated as prisoners of war and may be summarily executed. Mm. Robert entered the pilot house and took command of the ship and piloted her to safety. For this, he was reportedly promoted by Gilmore to the rank of captain and made captain of the planter. As a captain, he earned $150 a month making him the highest-paid black soldier in the American Civil War. Ooh, good honor. Yeah, well, you can't be worse than the previous captain who hid, so... <laughs> I mean, he is a like pretty decorated dude at this point. He managed to steal a ship, uh, free himself and his family and a bunch of other people, and go up a rank into a rank that has he would have never gotten in his previous life. Well, in his previous life, they wouldn't even call him a pilot when he was a pilot. He had to have a special oh, name yeah. for that job. So he'd yeah. never be a captain. <laughs> exactly my point. In May 1864, he was voted an unofficial delegate to the Republican National Convention in Baltimore. 
later that spring, Robert piloted the planter to Philadelphia for an overhaul. In Philadelphia, he supported what was known as the Port Royal Experiment, an effort to raise money to support the education and development of ex-slaves. At the outset of the Civil War, Robert could not read or write, but through the experiment he gained literacy studying in Philadelphia. In 1864, whilst in Philadelphia, Robert was in a streetcar and was ordered to give up his seat to a white passenger. And then he said, fuck you, and uh, kept uh, seated? Uh, No, he was a bit more diplomatic than that. Um, Uh Rather than ride on the open overflow platform, he left the car. That that diplomatic? Well, he kept his cool. Uh Uh-huh. The incident of humiliating a heroic veteran was cited in the debate that resulted in the legislature's passing of a bill to integrate public transport in Pennsylvania in 1867. It was also printed in the press, and a lot of people were on Robert's side. Not because he was black, but because he was a war hero. But still, they supported him there. I mean, that would make sense... Regardless, because the fact that he's a war hero gives him more legitimacy, sort of. Well, not legitimacy. Gives him more respect as a person. Yeah. So, even as a black man compared to a white man, the fact that he's a black war hero gives him a quote-unquote higher rank than the white person. In December 1864, Robert and the planter moved to support William T. Sherman's army in Savannah, Georgia, at the destination point of his march to the sea. Robert returned with the planter to Charleston Harbour in April 1865 for the ceremonial raising of the American flag again at Fort Sumter. Robert was discharged from the army on June 11, 1865. Now a civilian, he continued to pilot the planter serving a humanitarian mission of taking food and supplies to freedmen who lost their homes and livelihood during the war. On September 30th, the planter entered the service of the Freedmen's Bureau. That dude sounds awesome. Yeah, and he's about to sound even better because this this next section made me fall in love with him a little bit. Immediately following the war, Robert returned to his native Beaufort, where he purchased his former master's house, which the Union tax authorities had seized in 1863 for refusal to pay taxes. Later, the former owner sued him to regain the property, but Robert retained ownership in the court case. The case also became an important precedent in other similar cases. Wait, isn't the master the dude who was nice to him? Yeah, but he's still kind of did a badass move of buying his former owner's house that he had lost. It's kind of an awesome move. It is. And to show that he's not an arsehole, though, um, his mother, Lydia, lived with him for the remainder of her life at the house. He also allowed his former master's wife, the elderly Jane Bond McKee, to move into her former home prior to her death. Despite giving her a home for the last years of her life, Mrs. McKee refused to eat with Robert every single night that she spent in the house. Fine, she can starve. So he gave her a home and put up with her basically disrespecting him to his face. So still, again, awesome guy. 
in spite mm-hmm. of everything, stand-up fellow. During this period, he also purchased a two-story Beaumont building to use as a school for African-American children. In 1866, Robert went into business in Beaufort with Richard Howell Gleaves, a businessman from Philadelphia. They opened a store to serve the needs of freedmen. I, I, I don't think this dude is actually real at this point. <laughs> what, because he's a war hero and also the nicest guy around? Are you sure he's not Canadian? <laughs> Robert invested significantly in the economic development of the charleston Beaufort region. In 1870, in anticipation of a reconstruction-based prosperity, Robert, with fellow representatives, formed the Enterprise Railroad, an 18-mile horse-drawn railway that carried cargo and passengers between the Charleston Wharfs and inland depots. Except for one white director, the railroad's board of directors was entirely black. Author Bernard E. Powers described it as the most impressive commercial venture by members of Charleston's black elite. He also owned and helped publish a black-owned newspaper, the Beaufort Seven Standard, which began in 1872. Robert was a delegate in the 1868 Seven Carolina Constitutional Convention, where he was part of the effort to make free compulsory schooling available to all South Carolina children, regardless of race. He also served as a, ge- as a delegate for several Republican national conventions and participated in the South Carolina Republican state conventions. In 1868, he was elected to the South Carolina House of Representatives. Holy crap. Wow. And then he woke up and figured it was all a dream. No, this is all real. But how? Because he's amazing. Yeah. Uh, that he he was very well liked in the area by the black community, obviously, and because he grew up the way he did in the McKee house and of his because of his time in the military he was described as very comfortable around white people where a lot of slaves and former slaves wouldn't have been so i think he was able to sort of interact with white people in a way that a lot of black people at the time couldn't and that Mm -hmm. helped him a lot especially in his political career because they kind of started to see him at less as that's a black man and okay that's robert if you know what i mean he he was able to yeah no, that's, that's, break that's, through that's, that barrier they they started seeing him as a person and not just yes. oh look at this black guy or uh slave or criminal or whatever yeah he he was articulate enough and comfortable enough with white people that he was able to make them see him as a person and that helped him a great deal after the war. Yeah, sounds like it. As a House representative, he was very effective and introduced the Homestead Act and introduced and worked to pass the Civil Rights Bill. In 1870, Jonathan Jasper Wright was elected Judge of the South Carolina Supreme Court and Robert was elected to fill his unexpired time in the Senate. He continued in the Senate, winning the 1872 elections against W.J. Whipper. And I can only imagine why a guy in the South was called Whipper at that time. I do have to say, 
regardless of connotation, it's kind of a hilarious name. Oh, I'm sure it wouldn't have been for black anyone other than people in this timeline. I'm highly aware of it. In the Senate, he was considered a very good speaker and debater, and was on the Finance Committee and Chairman of the Public Printing Committee. In 1873, he was appointed Lieutenant Colonel of the 3rd Regiment South Carolina State Militia, and was later promoted to Brigadier General of the South Brigade South Carolina Militia, and the Major General of the of the 2nd Division South Carolina State Militia and held this position until 1877, when Democrats took control of the state government. In 1874, Robert was elected to the United States House of Representatives, where he served two terms from 1875 to 1879, and from 1882 to 1883, he represented South Carolina's 5th Congressional District in the House. In 1875, he opposed the transfer of troops out of the South, fearing that the effects of such a move on the safety of blacks in the South. During considerations of a bill to reduce and restructure the United States Army, Robert introduced an amendment that, hereafter in the enlistment of men in the army, no distinction whatsoever shall be made to account of race or colour. Yeah, that was still a thing till World War II. Yeah, the amendment was not considered by Congress at the time. Yeah, disintegration, I think, happened, I want to say it started before World War II, but it wasn't really towards the end of Korean War that it was finally actually done. Yeah, it took a hell of a long time. But Robert Robert tried in the 1870s, so good on him. It's all he can do at that point. After the Compromise of 1877, the U.S. government withdrew its remaining forces from South Carolina and other southern states. Conservative Southern Bourbon Democrats, who called themselves the Redeemers, had, restore, had resorted to violence and election fraud to regain control of the state legislature. As part of wide-ranging white efforts to reduce African-American political power, Roberts was charged and convicted of taking a bribe five years earlier in connection with the awarding of a printing contract. He was pardoned as part of an agreement by which the charges were also dropped against Democrats accused of election fraud. The scandal took a political toll, and he was defeated by Democrat George D. Tillman in the Senate election of 1876, and again narrowly in 1880. He successfully contested the 1880 result, and regained the seat in 1882. Robert's wife Hannah passed away on the 28th of July, 1883. In 1884, Robert was elected to fill a seat in a different district. He was nominated for Senate, but was defeated by Wade Hampton in 1886. During this period in Congress, he supported racial integration legislation, supported a pension for the, for the widow of his former, of his former Major General David Hunter, and advised South Carolina blacks to refrain from emigrating to North and Midwest or to Liberia. In 1889, he was appointed by President Benjamin Harrison as collector of the Port of Beaufort, which he held until 1813, except during Democrat Grover Cleveland's second term. Robert was active into the 20th century. He was a delegate in the 1895 South Carolina Constitutional Convention, and together with five other black politicians, he strongly opposed white Democratic efforts that year 
to disenfranchise black citizens. They wrote an article for the New York World to publicise the issues, but the state constitution was ratified. It and similar constitutions across the South for some time passed challenges that reached the US Supreme Court, resulting in the election and resulting in the exclusion of African Americans from politics across the South and crippling the Republican Party in the region. In 1890, he married for a second time to school teacher Annie Wig. In the late 1890s, he began to suffer from diabetes. He turned down an offer of colonelcy of a black regiment in the Spanish-American War and to the post of Minister of Liberia. Robert's second son, William Robert Smalls, was born in 1892. Unfortunately, his, wife, his second wife, Annie, passed away just three years later on November 5th, 1895. Though Robert was not officially involved with politics on the local level, he did nevertheless have some influence. In 1913, in one of his final actions as a community leader, he played an important role in stopping a lynch mob from killing two black men who were suspects in the murder of a white woman. He pressured the mayor, saying that the blacks he had sent through the city would burn the town down if the mob was not stopped. The, ma the mayor and the sheriff eventually stopped the lynch mob. Robert died of malaria and diabetes in 1915 at the age of 75 in his former master's home in Beaufort that he had owned since the end of the Civil War. 75? He was 75, yeah. Holy fuck! <laughs> he was buried in his family's plot in the churchyard of the Tabernacle Baptist Church in downtown Beaufort. The monument to Robert in the churchyard is inscribed with the statement he made to the South Carolina legislature in 1895. It reads, My race needs no special defence, for the past history of them in this country proves them to be the equal of any people anywhere. All they need is an equal chance in the battle of life. Fort Robert Smalls was named in his honour and was built by freed blacks in 1863, on Maguire's Hill on the south side of Pittsburgh during the American Civil War and survived until the 1940s. You said Fort Robert Smalls was built in the Civil War? Yeah, it was built in the Civil War and survived until the 1940s. But it was not named after him during the Civil War. No, it was named after him later on. Okay. In 2004, the U.S. named a ship for him. It's the USAV Major General Robert Smalls, a Kuroda-class logistics support vessel operated by the US Army. It is the first Army ship to, named, to be named after a black American. There is currently a proposal to create a statue of Robert Smalls to be installed in the South Carolina State House in his honour. There you go, that's Robert Smalls. Can we get more people like him? There were, trust me. Yeah. yeah, but hear enough about. Well, you hadn't heard enough. You hadn't heard about this guy, and he is not alone. There are so many stories like this where they're amazing people. They do huge things. They become the first people to do X, Y, Z, and history says, "Nope, sorry, you're not white. You're not male. You're not straight. You're not cis. We'll we won't tell stories about you." Mm -hmm. That that just proves my point. Not very true. 
you're saying it like I said something completely different. No, I, I want to hear these stories. I want the queer and the POC and the backs and people who did not physically fight on the forefront, but their creations completely changed the outcome of major wars. Give me the Trojan horses and the Enigma machines. Why don't we hear about these people? I admit, this is not one I've heard before specifically from my background, but as an American, I've heard other stories like this, and this is entirely yet another example. Every country has stories about the non-heroic assuming heroes. And you can't have heard them all, unfortunately. No one has heard every story. How many stories about amazing Israelis who've done things in the wars here that I've learned about? And I can't even remember all of their names, but I name a few of them, and just there's hundreds, and then Holocaust people, and Civil War, Revolutionary War, you go on and on and on. Yes, there's so many of these stories like this of people who have gone above and beyond, and it's great to be able to hear one tonight. Thank you, Amy. No, it's what I try and make this show about, the, the kind of thing that is interesting, inspiring, or horrifying, but people seem to have forgotten about, and I, I say this a lot to the point where it feels like I've repeated myself so many times, but you can't forget history. You, you need to have it. And people like Robert Smalls were fucking amazing. So, yeah, we've got to tell their stories. Very cool. Very well done, Amy. Well, if the listeners enjoyed this, where can they find you guys online if they want to follow you on Twitter or anything like that? Can they do that? Oh, absolutely. You can reach me. My website is hannahsimpson.com. And I actually, a couple months ago, visited the African American Museum in Washington, D.C., the new Smithsonian exhibit, an entire museum. So I have a piece up about that there from a couple months ago, maybe a year by now. And no, also Twitter at March. I, I was there in March, yes, but I was there another time before that. That was the second time I was there. I was there once before with you, then I was with you. I, that was my second time there, Eddie. Um, Twitter is Hansimp, that's H-A-N-N-S-I-M-P, as in the first four letters of my names. And then Instagram is HSimso, so like H Simpson without the N. That was taken. Awesome. And Addy, where can people find you online? Well, you can find me bugging Amy on Twitter at D underscore Anhang, A-N-H-A-N-G. And on Instagram, the same. Always bugging Amy. Yeah. Yeah. Good job, I like you. That's the only reason I put up with it. If you want to watch me bug Amy, ask her about eccentric Earth. This was a lot of fun. Thank you, Amy. No, thank you. Thank you really very much for coming on. I hope we can get you on again in the future. And I liked the two guests aspect. This was fun. It was it was an experiment and I think it went well. Yeah, just you know, message me anytime and we'll do one of these. Whatever works for you. Awesome, definitely. It's well, not like it's airing live, so you have a lot of flexibility. Oh no one told you. Okay. 
Well, if the listeners enjoyed this episode, you can find us on Twitter by going to at eccentric underscore earth. We're on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash eccentric earth. And our Instagram is eccentric earth. If you want to write into us with any feedback, suggestions for topics you'd like us to cover, our email address is eccentricearth at outlook.com. And you can find the show on all major podcast providers and on YouTube. So please make sure you subscribe so you don't miss an episode. And please leave a review if you can as well, because that does help us find new listeners. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure having you both on. And I'm glad you enjoyed yourselves. Well, thank you for having us. Thank you for having me again. We'll uh, catch everyone next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.